Well, Merry Christmas, everybody. That's what I love about the Christmas season. It's not just a day, but it's a whole season that we can enjoy the sights and the sounds and the traditions that we celebrate as families, right? We all have different traditions as a family. Maybe some of you, especially those of you with children, I'm sure, adopted a tradition a few years ago called Elf on the Shelf. Anybody in here? Yeah, you seen that guy, right? He's kind of a creepy dude, isn't he? Yeah, and here's how he came to be. I guess this lady wrote a book trying to answer the question, how does Santa know who's naughty and who's nice? Well, apparently he has this whole army of elves who serve as spies as they enter into the homes of all the children across the land, and they sit stationary during the day, just kind of observing, to seeing who's naughty, who's nice, and then when the little ones go to bed, the elves report back to Santa Claus the list of who's been naughty and nice. And then the next day when the kids wake up, the little elf is somewhere different in the house, engaged in some sort of different activity, still keeping his eyes on the children. Now today we call that elf on the shelf. In my day, we called that a stalker. I don't know about the rest of you, but that's kind of how I saw it. Now, more recently though, a woman named Katrina Shelton from Texas was having a hard time getting Elf on the Shelf to produce the desired behavior in her kids, okay? So she had to come up with something different. She came up with something called Grinch on a Bench, okay? Here's a picture of it. She found a Grinch doll, and she got it all decked out in Christmassy-looking attire. And here's how Grinch on the Bench works. See, Elf on the Shelf just reports back to Santa what the kids have done. Grinch on a bench actually takes kids' presents from under the tree. So what she did was she got some decoy presents, put the names of her children on the presents, and if their kids did not behave in the way they were hoping to on a given day, the kids would wake up the next morning and find one of their presents missing from the tree because Grinch in a bench took it away. But it got the desired effect of behavior out of her children. Now, I know some of you millennials in here are thinking right now, man, that is just so wicked to do that to your kids. But those of us who are seasoned veteran parents say, that woman is a genius, right? She's got it going on. I've always loved the story of the Grinch. I can still remember watching when I was knee-high, watching the Grinch come on TV and seeing that sinister little grin turn into an even more sinister smile as he had plans to destroy Christmas. But the best part of the movie came when at the very end, we saw the Grinch's heart grow a couple times bigger and Christmas save the Grinch, right? So the reason why we love that story is because redemption stories are always the best stories. So here's what I want to do. Over the next few weeks, we are going to take a look at one of the greatest redemption stories ever written and we're going to tie it to and tether it to the absolute, by far, greatest redemption story ever that was authored by God himself. Because there's really lots of Christmas redemption stories we could choose from, right? So many Christmas movies have a redemptive theme to them. We could pick Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, you know, who to his friends was kind of a loser and he comes back the hero that saved Christmas. We could talk about George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life and how... People thought he might be this crook and how he wished he never existed, but he comes to find out how many true friends he has and he's not going to be 
charged with anything and the money comes in, right? We could talk about Home Alone when little Kevin McAllister redeemed himself by snookering all the wet bandits that were trying to attack his home. Or we could talk about maybe some of y'all's favorite Christmas vacation, right? And you get a little teary-eyed when you see Clark Griswold go from Jelly of the Month Club to now he's getting that pool that he's always wanted, right? He's been redeemed somehow. Those are all great stories. But I'm convinced that the greatest story, my personal favorite in the Christmas season, has to be a Christmas carol based upon the book by Charles Dickens. Now, listen to me. In order to understand the story, you've got to understand the background, the context under which Dickens was writing this story, okay? So let me take you on a journey back to the mid-1800s Victorian England, okay? Now, there has never been a time in history where it's been easy to be poor, but specifically this day and time in the mid-1800s, it was very, very, very hard to be poor because of the increased practice of child labor, all right? Even Charles Dickens' own dad was thrown into debtor's prison in 1824, and Charles had to drop out of school, he had to pawn off his beloved books, and he himself had to work long, back-breaking hours in a boot factory, all right? But by the early 1840s, Charles Dickens had grown in popularity as a pretty good writer. And he had a journalist friend who had just done a report for the government on the practice of child labor. And when Dickens read this report, it broke his heart. Because he read about eight-year-old kids who had to work 11-hour days, six days a week, in dirty, dark, dangerous, unhealthy coal mines. He read about little girls who didn't even know really what the sun was because they had to be at work at the sewing factory before the sun rose, and they had to stay long after the sun had set. So they never even got any exposure to the sun. So here's what Dickens said. I'm going to use my platform as a writer, as somebody who's been very well respected and many people who are familiar with me, and I'm going to be an advocate for these kids. So what he was going to do originally was write a pamphlet, and the name of the pamphlet was going to be A Plea for the People of England on Behalf of the Poor Man's Child. All right? And I'm so glad he didn't just write a pamphlet because he did something better to make a point. He did what Jesus did to make a point. You know what he did? He told a what? He told a story to get his point across. He started this story, he started writing a Christmas carol in October. It was finished by December. It was first published on December 19th, 1843, and it it ran out of copies by Christmas Eve of that same year, less than a week later. The next year, 13 more editions had to be printed because it kept selling out over and over and over and over. And this year, right now, 2019, we celebrate the 176th anniversary of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. And not once in the last 176 years has that story ever been out of print. Now, here's the question. 
why do human beings resonate with that story? I think it goes back to what I said earlier. Because the best stories that we have as humanity are always redemption stories. So, in this story, the Grinch, we would say, is a miserly old man named Ebenezer Scrooge, who serves as a moneylender in London. And old Ebenezer is described in the book as a squeezing, grasping, wrenching, clutching, covetous, old sinner. And there's two words that kind of embody Scrooge's outlook on life, but particularly Christmas. And those two words are... Oh, come on. Say it like you're Scrooge, okay? On three. One, two, three. Bah humbug. And we see that spirit through the story, don't we? We see the spirit of bah humbug as Scrooge deals with his employee, Bob Cratchit. Bob Cratchit is so excited about Christmas because he gets very few holidays, and Christmas is one holiday, and Scrooge just kind of poo-poos on it and says, bah humbug to you and your Christmas, right? We see it when Scrooge's own nephew comes to invite him to a Christmas party for the whole family. And Scrooge says, you keep Christmas in your way and I'll keep it in mind. Bah humbug. And he scorns his nephew's invitation to the party. And we see it as well when two gentlemen step into Scrooge's shop and they're soliciting donations to help alleviate the needs and the burdens of the, the poor and the destitute in London. And Scrooge responds to their request by saying, are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? And they say, well, yeah, there are. He says, well, I was afraid from what you said that we might no longer have these useful institutions. And the men said, well, those institutions do exist, but many people would rather die than to go there. And Scrooge says, well, if they'd rather die, they'd better do it and decrease the surplus population. That's a bah humbug kind of a spirit, isn't it? We just see it over and over and over, just his, his anti-Christmas sentiment. So Scrooge goes home. He goes home to a dark house because he doesn't want to spend money on candles. So he's fine living in a dark house because he, he pinches pennies so much, he doesn't want to spend money on, on such unnecessaries like candles, right? And he eats cold soup. Because to warm up the soup would require fuel of some sort, and he's so tight he doesn't want to spend money on fuel. So he makes his way up to his bedroom, and as he's preparing himself to go to sleep, he hears the clankety-clank of chains coming. And he looks around, and he sees before him this ghost, this spirit, this apparition of his former business partner, Jacob Marley. And the reason why there's all these clanks is because you can see Jacob Marley has all these chains and this, he's bound by this heaviness around him. And Marley says, these chains I forged in my own life through my pursuit of money, my greed, my ignoring the basic needs of humanity. Humanity should have been my business, but I ignored them. And Marley says, Scrooge, I'm here for one reason. I'm here to prevent you ending up like me after you die. I'm here to prevent you from going through eternity with this kind of chains, these kinds of bondage when you die. So Scrooge, tonight, there's going to be three ghosts that come visit you. There's going to be a ghost of Christmas past, a ghost of Christmas present, a ghost of Christmas future. And he departs. 
Well, Scrooge dismisses the visit like it was some sort of a hallucination or a bad dream or even the result of some indigestion of some food that did not settle well. So he puts his head on the pillow, and sure enough, moments later, he is his first visitor, the ghost of Christmas past. And she tells Scrooge, I'm going to take you to some past Christmases of your life. And so they start on a journey. And their destination is specifically one of Scrooge's childhood Christmases. And she takes him to his school that he attended as a boy. And as they arrive, they see a boy who's sitting all by himself at a desk. He's lonely. He's being neglected by his peers. And Scrooge says, I recognize that boy. And he begins to sob. And you start to get a hint right there with the tears and the connection of Scrooge that maybe the reason why this old man is so crusty and so hard and just so anti-people, anti-happiness, anti-life, anti-love, anti-everything you and I cherish, that maybe the reason that he's so crusty like that is because it's his way of dealing and coping with some severe pain from his past. But the ghost's mission is not done. She takes him now to the Christmas of young adult Scrooge. And it's not just Scrooge in this scene, because Scrooge is capable of love. We don't think that about him in his older years, but at one time he was capable of love, and it was with a young woman named Belle. And he wants to marry Belle, but Belle rejects his proposal for marriage because she knows she will never be his first love. The acquisition of wealth will always be his first love because he thinks that in acquiring wealth, that will make him in some way significant. That will make him protected against ever feeling neglected again like he was when he was a little boy. So wealth becomes his security against future hurts. So listen to Belle's rejection of him. Listen what she says. She says, an idol has replaced me, and I release you to the life you have chosen. Oh. And then the ghost takes Scrooge just a few more years ahead in his past, where Scrooge is forced to witness Belle and her husband and her children. And it's Christmas time, and they're happy, and there's gaiety, and there's lots of laughter. There's everything that Scrooge has never, ever known. And Scrooge makes a plea to the ghost when he says, Why do you delight in torturing me? Take me home. I can bear it no more. So here's what we're introduced to, friends. We're introduced to the idea that redemption can be a wonderful destination, but it can be a hard, long, painful journey to get there. See, here's what we know. You are who you are. I am who I am. People are who they are because where they have been and what they have been through. 
So sometimes the only way in life that we can go forward is we've got to go backwards and deal with the things from our past. So the possibility of redemption, I don't care who it is or what you've done, the possibility of redemption always goes back to this question, folks. Can I get past my past? Because the past can be a wonderful classroom where we learn a whole lot of things that help us move forward. But as some of you know far too well, the, class, the, the past has proven to be an impenetrable prison for some of you. And that's why you're always living back there. Because you can't escape your past. In fact, a few years ago, 60 Minutes did a report on this very significant group of people. Not a very large group of people in number because they, they suffered from something. And here's what it was called. It was called superior autobiographical memory. Do you know what that means? In layman's terms, here's what it means. This group of people, because of the way their brains were wired and their body makeup, they could remember every single detail of every day of their life. How many of you would like that? No more scrapbooks, no more Polaroids, because you got it right here in your noodle, right? You don't need anything else. And if you don't agree that you would like that, I think you're pretty wise, because here's what happened. During this interview, they talked to one lady, and she said having the kind of memory that she possessed was like a prison. Because every bad choice that she ever made Every regrettable decision, every, uh, every hurtful word that was spoken to her, every hurtful word that she spoke to somebody else, everything ugly and hard and bitter and, and, and unpleasant was always there to haunt her. And she said that when she lay her head down at night to go to sleep, these bad decisions, bad choices, hurtful things of life were consistently just being rehearsed in her mind. And I got news for some of you. Tragically, that's where some of you still live. Because here's what I know. What we continue to rehearse over and over and over from way back when, we ultimately begin to resemble here and now. So here's what we need. We need a story that can rescue you and me from our past stories. What we need is nothing less than Christmas. It was first announced by the angels who appeared in the sky and they were saying in Luke 2.10, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news. That will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. That's what we need. We need better news. News that's greater than our current story, right? So let's talk about this for a moment. Let's talk about how Christmas is greater than all my past. Because here's what I know. We're all sinners. And by that I mean 
We've all got those things in our life that we wish we had a do-over again. The I wish I wouldn't have. The uh, should have, could have, would have. If I only had that moment in time back again, I would do things completely differently. My life would be different now. My family would be different now. But because of this certain time and this decision, it's wreaked havoc in my life. In fact, I read about a man whose name was Rogers Cadenhead, okay? And he had the foresight to do something. When he saw that Pope John Paul II was ailing in his health, he went out and purchased the domain name www.benedict16.com because he was betting on the fact that when Pope John Paul II died, that Cardinal Benedict would become the next pope. And guess what? He was absolutely right. So now he's the sole possessor of the website that the Vatican desperately wants. So they talk. And Rogers Cadenhead says, I don't want any money for it, but there are a few things I want. I want three things specifically. First, I want one of those really tall, pointy Pope hats. Second, I want a two-night stay at the Vatican Hotel. And third, I want complete absolution, no questions asked, about the third week of March, 1987. Now, I don't know what he did that third week of March 1987, but here's what I know. You've got your third week of March. I've got my third week of March, right? For some of you, it's extended even just beyond weeks. You're maybe at months, or maybe some of you lived absolute years in a time and place where you have regret now, wishing you had a do-over. We've all got skeletons in the closet. Amen? It's a big, big club. Even our biblical heroes aren't exempt, are they? You look at all the who's who of the Bible, and you'll see they've got regrets. I'm sure that Noah regretted the day that he got drunk, and that time changed his life forever. It changed his family forever. Do you think that Abraham ever looked back on regret at the times where he lied about Sarah being his sister when she was really his wife, and he wished that he would have just expressed faith in God and told the truth in those moments. What about David? You think David ever laid his head on his pillow at night and had the images of Uriah the Hittite, this loyal soldier in his army? David knowing full well that he committed adultery with Uriah's wife and planned and plotted Uriah's own murder. Do you think that David ever regretted that? Do you think that Peter ever had a time when he thought back to the night of Jesus' trial and arrest. And Peter could hear in his mind over and over that cock crowing three times, with each time Peter denying that he knew Jesus. Do you think he wished he had that moment to do over again, to wipe off the slate, to make it right? We've all messed up. We've all got those moments in our past that we could wish were just completely absolved, no questions asked. So I want you to listen to what the angel said to Joseph about Mary's pregnancy, because here's where we have some hope. Matthew 1, 21. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means the Lord saves. 
So he is the perfect savior for all the imperfect times in your life and in my life. And you know why we need to hear that today? Because if you're anything like me, sometimes you can paint God with a brush that he does not deserve to be painted with. Sometimes we look at God as if he's the divine Santa Claus and he's keeping track of who's been naughty and who's been nice. And when is God going to bring this up to me and demand the pound of flesh that I owe him? And here's the answer biblically. The psalmist asked this question. Here's what the conclusion he came to. Psalm 130 verse 3. Lord, if you kept a record of our sins... Who, O Lord, could ever survive? But you offer forgiveness. God is not making a list. God is not checking it twice. Do you know why? God no longer has the list. You say, well, what happened to it? Well, Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Micah 7, 9, 19, you will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. And as the late Corey Ten Boom used to say, when God throws your sins in the deepest parts of the sea, he puts up a no fishing sign. Amen? That's the God we serve. And quite frankly, some of you need to hear that. Because here's what I know you do on a regular basis. You keep beating yourself up for sins that heaven has no record of. You're letting the past dictate your present and shape your future. Heaven has no record of those sins that you keep beating yourself up from if you are in Christ. But here's the struggle. Because again, I'm a fellow struggler. I'm one who kind of, as at times, had the flowers. He loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. Because you know why? I know me. And you know you. And Paul knows Paul. And here's what Paul says about himself. It's the anthem of the human race. Listen to what he says here. Romans 7, 15. I don't really understand myself. For I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. Can I get a witness in here this morning? Yes, we're all guilty, right? We know what God wants. We know what God desires. We, we, we want to walk in those ways. But we find ourselves backpedaling and doing the exact opposite, right? So Paul's got this inner tension between what he knows he wants to do, the kind of man he wants to be, and the reality of the kind of man that he is. And in a moment of desperation, here's what he cries out. He says, oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Good news. Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? That's worth of celebrating, folks. This is why this is good news. Because not just do I receive forgiveness from the sins that I have committed but I receive the freedom from the power of sin that causes me to do these things in the first place. 
until Paul gets to this great conclusion in Romans 1, after, or in Romans 8, after he talks about, you know, the things he's doing that he wished he wouldn't, and what am I going to do? Thank God for Jesus. So what does Jesus bring? Romans 8, 1. Listen to this. So now there is, say it with me, no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Here's what that's saying. Only one person in all of human history has been born who has the right to condemn you and condemn me for our sins. Only one. But he wasn't born to condemn you or condemn me. He was born to help you and to help me conquer our sins. Amen? I'm going to say that again because that was good, okay? Only one person in all of history has been born who could condemn us for our sins. But instead of being born to condemn us for our sins, he was born to help us conquer our sins. By his wounds, you have been, you are, you will be healed. Now, I don't know what the biggest regret you have is. I don't know what the biggest hurt the biggest do-over, the biggest I wish I could relive that again. But here's what I know Scripture says. I don't care what it is, when it happened, who it involved. In Christ, there is no condemnation. And then Paul continues in verse 2. And because you belong to him. That's the key right there. We've got to belong to Christ. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. You know what Paul's saying? My chains, your chains in Christ are broken. So you know what this tells me? Jesus did not come to this earth to be some life coach. Jesus did not come to be your therapist and my therapist. Jesus came to be one thing for you and me. He came to be our deliverer. To deliver you from the sins of your past that keep messing things up. And to deliver you from the power of sin that keeps you living in fear. Now listen folks. Because he was sinless, he and he alone was the only one who was qualified to take your sins and my sins to the cross and to absolutely satisfy every claim that sin had against us. And listen to me. Satan, because he is a deceiver, wants you to believe and wants me to believe that sin is still my master. As I said, he wants your past to dictate your present and for that present looking back in the past to shape your future so that all you're ever doing is living in the rearview mirror. And he says to you, yeah, you can go ahead and call yourself a Christian. You can attend church all you want. You can do these good little deeds, whatever you're doing. But you know and I know, he says, you are always going to be the mess that we know you are. And in response to that, friends, when you hear those voices and those accusations, sometimes you just got to verbalize it and shout it out. And you got to say, no, because I've got a deliverer. 
And my deliverer came and he was born in Bethlehem. And he came in flesh and blood. And he lived the sinless life that I could not live. And he died upon the cross and took the burden of my sins that I should have been mine. And they put him in a tomb and he rose to new life and he ascended to heaven and he's coming back. And my sins are forgiven and I have freed from the power of sin and death forever. Or in the immortal words of that great theologian, Carmen, when Satan reminds you of your past, you remind him of his future, right? More importantly, you remind him of your future. I'm a co-heir with Christ. I'm a saint of God. I'm a friend of God. I have been made righteous. I'm a child of the Most High King. That's our future, folks. But we're only going to get there if we can leave the past in the past. Charles Wesley got it when he penned the words of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. That's why I wanted Michael and the worship team to sing that this morning because there's a certain line in there that applies to you and applies to me. Listen to what he says. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man may no longer die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them what? Second birth. New life, hope, and a future. The past is the past. The past is gone. The past has been erased. The past means no condemnation. Listen to me, friends. Christmas is greater than anything you have ever done or anything you will ever do. So quit being like Scrooge, get out of the past, and stop letting the past rob you of joy and life in the present. One last story. It's about a man who was in residency to be a doctor. His name was Bill Cook. And he had the privilege of having as his mentor one of the greatest surgeons in America. And one day he got a phone call from his mentor saying, hey, we're getting ready to do an operation. I need you to come to the hospital, get scrubbed up, and meet me in the operating room. So he's excited and nervous at the same time, okay, because this guy he's working with is big leagues when it comes to, to doctors. So he gets to the hospital, scrubs up, goes in the operating room, finds out it's an appendectomy, okay, uh, a minor, or relatively routine surgery, right? He steps up beside the bed waiting for the surgery to begin, and his mentor steps aside, hands the scalpel to Dr. Bill Cook and says, you do it. And immediately, it's like all the color went out of his face and he said, I can't. I've never done this before. And that old seasoned doctor just put his arm on his shoulder and says, son, there ain't nothing you can do that I can't fix. Not what you want to hear your doctor say before you go under the gas, right? But if you're interning or in residency, that's pretty comforting, right? And I tell you that story for this reason, because some of you need to hear Dr. Jesus say today to you, whatever's in your past, no matter how dark, vile, evil, sinister, whatever it is, you need to hear Dr. Jesus say to you, son, daughter, there's nothing that you could ever do that I can't fix. 
that right there, friends, is proof of it. Maybe you need to deal with your past today. I can think of no better place for people with a past to deal with their past than in a group of people who've all got a past, who all say, I need a savior. I want no condemnation. So if that's you today, maybe as Michael and the worship team comes up and we sing some songs here as we close, Maybe you just make like a a personal little altar where you're at. Or maybe you come up here and you just pray and you let the past stay here today and you move out of this place free. Or maybe that looks like you needing to make a phone call. Maybe you need to visit a grave site sometime and just say what you need to say for your benefit so you can move beyond the past. I don't know what you need to do. I know God does not want you living in the present, constantly tethered to a past, robbing you and sucking all the joy and life out of now. And if you need prayer about something in the back porch today, myself and some elders will be back there and we can help you process this and we'll pray with you and we'll hear you out. We just want you to leave free. We don't want you to be like Scrooge and develop a crust and a hardness in life because of what was done to you in the past. Christ has so much more for you, that friends, than that. So do business with your past today so you can have a better future. And that's the whole reason why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Because we're admitting through cup and loaf, we're believing with everything we have, there's nothing that I've done that Dr. Jesus can't fix. And I pray that right now you will feel that and know that truth as you partake in his body and his blood. If you don't know Jesus today, here's the news that I have for you. Everything that I read today does not apply to you. Remember, the key is being in Christ, acknowledging his lordship, that he is your God, your savior, and your king. And if you've never submitted to him in that way, The news I have for you is you are under condemnation. Your future does not look bright. But Jesus says you can have healing from that even today by coming to know him as Lord and Savior. So if that's your desire as well, we'll be in the back porch and you can come to know Christ today in that capacity. Won't you pray with me right now? Father, we come to you In the name of our glorious king, who has taken care of our past, and he's providing for us a far, far better future. Thank you, Father, for the promise that there's no condemnation. Thank you for the answer, that the answer is Christ Jesus, our Lord. May we live in that victory every day of our lives, and not live based on the rearview window, but look out the front window at what is ahead, not what's behind. I pray for people here today, Lord, struggling with their past, that they'll be able to find some resolve. They'll take it all to the, to the cross, to the throne of grace, and forgive whoever needs to be forgiven. And leave here today, Lord, with chains that are broken. We thank you for this time where we observe everything you've done on our behalf.
we say thank you as your children. In Christ's name, amen.